0: Now one of the more uh, personal descriptions of God that the Bible uses is it describes God as the God who tests our hearts. Now Paul, the Apostle Paul, was the one who used this phrase in describing God to the believers uh, in Thessalonica and he used it in a setting where he was saying that he had not come into their midst to preach to them so as to tickle their ears or to win a personal following, but really he was on a divine mandate And so he was preaching for the glory of God, fulfilling what the Lord had entrusted to him. But in that context, he said that he's preaching for the God who had entrusted him with this ministry, but he's the God who tests our hearts. Now, for the Apostle Paul, those testings seemed like they were never ending. And so he just continually endured all sorts of sufferings, but that actually became the hallmark of his ministry and the genuineness of his apostolic calling and commission was that he suffered, and yet he maintained a consistency and a steadiness to continue heralding the word of God. Now, this wasn't just true for the Apostle Paul, this is actually how the Lord has functioned and worked with his saints throughout all of history. So just consider a few of these examples. You guys remember the character of Job, Old Testament? He lost everything that he had, but he testified in Job 23.10, that God knows the way that I take, and when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. And so he even used the imagery of a refiner's fire and the purification, and by the end of it, there would be a purified gold. You guys remember Abraham, he had the unenviable test of being told to sacrifice his son Isaac, and he was shaken in his boots, but he trusted that the Lord was even able to raise Isaac from the dead. And lo and behold, in the last minute, the Lord spared Isaac's life. And so Abraham had a major test. David was tested and his testimony in Psalm seventeen three is, you have tried my heart, you have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. And so really, he's describing even the testings of God as like a divine scrutiny of what was within him. And he's saying, Lord, you've given me your exam. You'll find that there's nothing within me. My hands are clean. And not only did David look back on testings he had received, but actually it was even one of the staples in his prayer diet was praying for the Lord to continue testing him. Psalm 26 too, David prayed, prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. And so, even there, he's using different words that all get at the same idea prove, try, test. How about Psalm 139? A lot of our favorite Psalm, verse 23. David said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, and know my thoughts. And so there it is again this is a part of his prayer life because he knew that testing was actually the pathway to greater intimacy with god now god didn't just test the saints through hardship even though that's kind of all the ones that we've seen so far (laughs) but the lord would even test people with prosperity oddly enough and if we had to pick we'd say i'd rather have that test than that test (laughs) but they're tests nonetheless King Hezekiah was blessed with tremendous riches, but Second Chronicles 32, 31 says that God left Hezekiah to himself. Oof, that should make you shudder right there. God left Hezekiah to himself in order to test him and to know what was in his heart. Obviously, God knew what was in Hezekiah's heart, and the the purpose of the test was really for Hezekiah, for him to be exposed to what was in his own heart, and lo and behold, with those riches that he had, he ended up showing it off to the Babylonian envoy that came to him, and that resulted in even all of those treasures being plundered years later. And so the tests that all of these saints that we've looked at, they were given so as to refine and to strengthen their faith but the process was in fact a painful process and it's no different for you and for me is it the Lord tests our faith he stretches us at times it feels like beyond stretching and we're tearing (laughs) and it's painful right but in that process the impurities of unbelief misplaced trust they're exposed and so then we can actually humbly repent of those things and then refine in how we approach the Lord in our worship and in our faith and so we do discover a whole lot within ourselves that is actually sinful but we also discover through that process the faithfulness of God and I would say this we also I would also add this we especially discover the lengths to which God will go to glorify Christ in us and through us including trials that test our hearts because through the process as we yield in faith we're conformed into the image of Christ and it results in his glory and so it's not just for our sake that our faith is refined and tested and strengthened it's for the Lord's sake and for his glory that the Lord does these things now these dynamics they're captured well in a particular Getty song you guys may know the song is Jesus draw me ever nearer the chorus says may this journey bring a blessing may I rise on wings of faith and at the end of my heart's testing with your likeness let me wake and so it's a simple prayer to be made like Christ through the testings that the Lord ordains and so again we worship a God who is described as the God who tests our hearts the god who tests our hearts and this morning we're going to get to witness one of these tests of faith and so turn your bibles to mark chapter 7. mark chapter 7 and we're going to meet a gentile woman whose faith was tested now really her test very simply it serves as a template that you and i similarly go through when god tests our faith And so let's read mark chapter 7 it's the syrophoenician woman starting in verse 24. mark 7 24 and from there he arose and went away to the region of tyre and sidon and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know yet he could not be hidden but immediately a woman whose little daughter Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Now in this short passage really what we see is there's three stages that every believer passes through when God tests their faith. And that's gonna be our simple outline. Three stages that every believer passes through when God tests their faith. And let me just give them to you. Stage one, every believer comes to Christ. Stage two, every believer is tested by Christ. And stage three, every believer is affirmed by Christ. And so it's very simple, comes to Christ, tested by Christ and affirmed by Christ. And so let's unpack really this first stage that every believer passes through now the larger context here is that jesus has been ministering around the sea of galilee so this is the northern boundaries of israel that people are coming from all over the place in order for him to heal their sick and as this was happening there were some pharisees and a special delegation of scribes that made the long journey from jerusalem up to the sea of galilee because they wanted to have a confrontation with Christ. We know from earlier in Mark's gospel that they were already scheming and plotting and planning how they could take him out, and so they came to confront him and to oppose him. Now in that encounter, Jesus actually ends up turning their accusations around, and instead, they're the ones who get exposed. That really, what was going on is that they were dressing up and excusing their disobedience and making it look like virtue. And so he called them out for being hypocrites all right there was nothing no place left to hide for them in that confrontation well this confrontation with these religious leaders morphed into it shifted into him teaching the crowds and he explained that right standing with god is not a matter of externals but it's a matter of internals in other words that god looks upon the heart not the upon keeping rituals and so for his hearers if they would have been honest with themselves well they would have recognized that they had all of the markers of defiling sin in their own hearts and so the issue was defilement and purity what does it take to be able to stand before god as a worshiper of god and previously they were saying oh it's all externals but christ is saying no look to the heart and so even in mark 7 21 Just a little bit earlier, Jesus says, From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Now this is an important correction for Jesus to bring because really the crowds had been wrongly taught both by example as well as by instruction that right standing with God was a matter of these external rites and rituals but Christ's explanation he was saying that impurity and defilement before God could never be rooted in external causes This meant that they could never pass the buck of responsibility to the generation that was before them. They could never pardon their sin with some kind of a plausible argument of deniability. They could never say that they were a victim of circumstance as justification for their sin. Instead, the only thing they were left with was the reality of internal corruption. And until people recognized that this was the true problem... They would never find the true solution it would just be vanity after vanity after vanity and so jesus he ministered the truth to them i mean mark 7 21 is a hard-hitting heavy verse but that was a ministry that the people needed to hear so that they would rightly understand the things of god he was helping them to diagnose even their own hearts so as to properly see their need catch this for god's mercy because hey when you're told that it's not a matter of externals it's a matter of what's inside of your heart and you have even an ounce of honesty and you look at your own heart and you say wow I just heard what Christ said and I see those things in my own heart what are you left with except falling upon your knees and pleading for God's mercy upon you and so this is the key we need God's mercy and much to Israel's dismay her own religious leaders were the last ones to acknowledge their need for mercy. And in fact, they took offense at Christ. So Israel didn't have anybody modeling this for them. But in fact, they were modeling pride and self-righteousness. But in this story that we're going to look at this morning, we meet a woman who profoundly knew her need for mercy. Now, she probably didn't hear what Jesus had said up in verse 21, but she already knew where her true need lie And that she needed this mercy there's an irony here though because what we're going to see is that this woman was the least likely candidate to model spiritual maturity and yet that's precisely what she does as she does end up modeling spiritual maturity now in verse 24 Mark tells us that Jesus left Israel and he went into a neighboring Gentile region called Tyre now Tyre and Sidon were both to the north Of Israel, and these were Phoenician coastal cities right on the Mediterranean Sea. And so, even think modern day Lebanon. That's where Jesus went. But Mark tells us Jesus went up there hoping to get away. Verse 24 says, He entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Right? Christ wanted some privacy. (laughs) Even Christ needed some privacy. He was always ready to preach to the masses and to heal whatever sick may have come to him. But on this occasion, Mark is so clear that this was his goal and his objective. But it wasn't just the privacy of solitude, as though Christ needed some alone time. If he needed that, in earlier passages in Mark, we've seen that he'll actually get up very early in the morning while it's still dark, and he'll go off and he'll pray in solitude. But in this instance, he meant to spend undivided time with his disciples, you see, Jesus was carefully preparing his disciples for the dark and the difficult days that were coming. And so consider what Jesus knew and what they yet had to grasp. Jesus knew that the religious leaders were actively conspiring to murder him. And Mark's gospel is explicit on that. Jesus knew that he came to die. By the time the cross came around, it was no surprise. It was not like, ooh, how did we end up here? Jesus actually announced three times to his disciples that he would be crucified and raised again from the dead. And then thirdly, Jesus also knew that his disciples were not yet ready for this kind of a test on their faith. You see, Jesus had seen their fearful response to his power when he calmed the wind and the waves, and that just happened right prior to this. He had seen their faithless response when he fed the multitudes with the loaves and the fish and he had also seen their terrified response when he walked on water i mean these are the characteristics that describe the disciples at this point in time they're fearful they're faithless they're terrified right they're still trying to put one and one together who is this jesus yes they've abandoned their fishing nets and they're following after him and they're seeing him do miracles and they're hearing his teaching and it's incredible but at the same time they're still not putting one and one together and it's not actually until chapter 8 which is really kind of the pinnacle of Mark's gospel where Peter makes his good confession that you are the Christ the son of the living God and so at this stage in the story Christ knows that he's having to massage and to grow and to nurture and to stimulate the faith of his disciples and so he needed some private time with them to be able to continue pouring into them and so he understood that they needed time to mature in their faith well praise the lord he knows that we also need the same thing in order for us to mature in our faith we're not too different are we <laughs> now in spite of Jesus' quest for mercy mark or for privacy mark tells us that he could not be hidden and that instead immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet Now, remember, Jesus is far up north, he's in Gentile territory, and even up there, people knew of his reputation for healing. And so word has spread far and wide. Now, the way that verses 25 and 26 unfold, it's quite dramatic, right? And it's all highlighting that there's this woman who was truly desperate. And so even her desperation, it glimmers and it sparkles like it has real faith. She's doing things that suggest she has faith, but by the end of this whole story, we're going to discover that the things that she does here in 25 and 26, none of these initial expressions are actually the proof of her faith, right? They're kind of like window dressing, if you will. And so Mark explains that this distressed woman's burden was for her little daughter who was demon-possessed. Now, the word that's used for daughter here, though, it's not just the simple word for daughter— but Mark uses a diminutive form of the word. Now, a diminutive is simply a word that's used to describe either something small or something that we have a particular affection for, right? And so, for example, we have the word dog, and it refers to an animal, but we also have the word doggy. Think about the difference between those two words. Dog is an animal, but what is a doggy? I mean, it's... How would you describe it it's like a small dog but you also feel affectionate towards it right there's a sweetness that's there that's what we mean by the word diminutive and that's the word that's used for daughter so it's not just her female offspring but it's her precious little girl that's the image that you should have in your mind but notice her precious little girl is being tortured by a demon who is destroying her life it makes your heart ache just thinking about what she was enduring and we're not told specifically how this demon afflicted her the parallel account in Matthew 15 says that the girl was severely oppressed by a demon now if we were to even look at other stories of demon possession in Mark's gospel there is one in Mark chapter 9 of another child that was demon possessed in this case it was a father with his son so this one it's a girl with her daughter and that one it's a father with his son And he explained to Jesus that this demon caused his boy to be mute and to convulse, even foaming at the mouth and then rolling around on the ground. He also explains that the demon often cast the boy into fire and into water so as to destroy him. And so this is a terrifying reality that would have kept you on pins and needles. And this is what the mother was experiencing with her precious little girl her sweetheart right heart-wrenching picture of what's going on and so we get it she, she is full of despair right she's desperate for a solution and so we find in verse 25 that she came to Jesus the instant that she heard that Jesus was nearby and so whatever else she was doing it's secondary right because this horrific affliction was consuming her life Charles Spurgeon wisely observed and commented. He said, what made her seek him? Strange to say, a devil had a hand in it. But not so as to give the devil any of the praise. The truth was that a gracious God used the devil himself to drive this woman to Jesus. (laughs) Wow. That's amazing. (laughs) This is a hope-giving reality, isn't it? Right? While Satan seeks to destroy life, the terror and the grief that he stirs up actually has the potential to be the catalyst that drives you to the Lord. Man, church, even this morning, today, are you running to the Lord with your grief? Are you running to the Lord with your terror like this woman ran to her Lord? hmm mark tells us that when she came she fell down at his feet and so this just again shows her desperation she's at his mercy and we also learn in verse 26 this woman was a gentile a Syrophoenician by birth now this is important because it means that she's not Jewish in her ancestry or in her culture and so she was not a part of the chosen people of God Right? She was an outsider to God's promises. Now, she did have some level of understanding of who Jesus was, though. In fact, in Matthew's parallel account, she actually calls Jesus the son of David. Right? This was a messianic title that picks up on the Davidic covenant that there was going to come one from the lineage of David who would reign on an eternal throne. And so Israel's waiting for this son of David, their messiah, Meanwhile, Israel's religious leaders, they're blind, they don't realize this is who Jesus Christ is, but wow, a Syrophoenician woman recognizes that this is who who he is, and yet she was an outsider. Now in the biblical worldview, there are really just two ethnicities. You have the Jews, and then you have everybody else, the Gentiles, very simplistic description but the basis of the distinction was that Yahweh was the God of the Jews while the Gentiles were idol worshipers, right? To put it another way, God had revealed himself to the Jews and so they had the light of understanding, but the Gentiles were outsiders who lived in spiritual darkness. Now it's important to understand though that when God had privileged the Jews, he wasn't actually neglecting the rest of the world, You see his plan from the beginning was to bless abraham and through him all the nations of the world would be blessed even in exodus 19 verse 6 it says that the jews were to be god's holy people fulfilling a priestly role through which the rest of the world would be blessed right they were to be a kingdom of priests now in particular god had promised to send one man from within israel called the anointed one and he was to be the promised king through whom the whole world would be blessed and the devil would be defeated think back to Genesis chapter 3 and so the Jews they were blessed in order to be a blessing and so this is where the irony in our story kicks in the Jews should have been the ones to display faith in their God but in this story it's a no-name woman from a no-name people who is running to Jesus Now the other thing that Mark tells us is that she was begging or she kept asking right and so her desperation is so apparent and she has this sparkle of faith this all this activity that's unfolding but at the same time at this point in the story we don't actually know is this genuine faith or is this just busy activity right and how do we tell the difference Now, I'm asking this question because there's plenty of things that we might find ourselves doing that appear to be the essence of faith, only later to discover that they weren't faith, but they may have just been done out of self-preservation. And so think back to the scripture reading that we did earlier with the rich young ruler, right? In that story, the man ran up to Jesus and he knelt before him. I mean, this guy was pious. Wow, he's running and he's kneeling. Whoa, whoa. incredible. And he even calls Jesus good teacher. So he's showing respect to Christ. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit life or eternal life? Well, just like our Syrophoenician woman, he did display actions that looked like faith. But in that story, if you remember, Jesus gave him a challenge that exposed that his heart's true love was actually his riches. And that man, he went home dejected. He didn't go home and sell everything he had. He went home sad. (laughs) He went went home upset. Why did Jesus have to say I have to sell everything? And prior to Jesus' response, right, to the rich young ruler, everybody looking at this guy would have said, hey, this guy is the real deal. Let's clap for him. He's doing everything that you should do if you're a man of faith well so too Jesus is about to give this Gentile woman a similar challenge now the challenge is necessary though because until the challenge comes we're not able to tell whether the flurry of activity is genuine faith or if it's a sparkling imitation and so we too might find ourselves busy doing all the things that look like faith But until the test comes, we don't know if it's God-honoring faith or self-preservation. We don't know ourselves, friends. (laughs) We really don't. And that's where Christ has to expose and test our hearts. And so if stage one is that every believer comes to Christ, well, let's move on to stage two. Every believer is tested by Christ. And so Jesus' response to her wasn't just a simple yes or no, I'll heal or I'll not heal your daughter. But instead, he engaged her, even though his response seems rude and off-putting. And so notice what he says in verse 27. Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And so he's really using a string of metaphors and this is vital to understanding our story here. We have to understand what Jesus meant with these metaphors. Now for starters, Jesus prioritizes feeding the children before the household dog is fed. Now we can understand this readily enough that you prioritize human life before you prioritize animals. Although I suppose there might be some exceptions to that rule, (laughs) knowing how in our culture people feel about their pets, (laughs) right? But we understand the prioritization. And so that wasn't lost on the woman either but we're left with a question who are the children and who are the dogs and so in this metaphor the children are the jews right they were the first to receive the blessings of god and so this is part of the jew gentile distinction that i was describing a minute ago and so this preferential treatment that's based on god's choice is seen consistently throughout the scriptures Old Testament and New Testament. Now in the parallel passage to this story, Matthew's account says, Jesus says, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. And so he is a shepherd, but he's specifically the shepherd of Israel, not of the surrounding nations. Interesting. Even when Jesus first commissioned his disciples, his apostles to go out on their first missionary journey, he was very clear in his instructions only go to the jewish towns and villages don't go to the gentile and the samaritan towns and villages so again there was a prioritization go here not there well in our story the children are the jews and so the dogs are the gentiles now the term dogs here it's not so much of a, a pejorative as it is a statement of primary versus secondary And so as one commentary explains, the term dogs doesn't refer to wild dogs, but to small dogs taken in as house pets. Now just a little time out, this is kind of interesting, apparently in Jesus' day and age, people had dogs for pets that were in their homes, (laughs) right? It's not just like American cultural convention where we have animals in our homes, you know, our little doggies running around, apparently they had that back then too. Fascinating, isn't it? (laughs) So it is thus not a derogatory term, but was intended by Jesus to indicate the privileged position of the Jews as the initial recipients of Jesus's ministry. And so again, the point that we're just continuing to reinforce here is that the Gentiles came secondary to the Jews. Now, Jesus said this, though, because he was testing her faith. In fact, the very next place after this whole story unfolds is that Christ travels down to the southeast of the Sea of Galilee. This is a Gentile area, and while he's there, he actually heals a Gentile man performing a marvelous miracle. And so Christ does do ministry among the Gentiles, performing miracles for them, and so there's something unique that he's doing to bring this to the woman and to put this right in front of her. And so for her, Jesus highlighted that she comes second to the Jews. And this is the crux of our story. Because remember, she's asking for a miracle Jesus, please heal my daughter. And yet Jesus tells her that his priority is not to attend to her needs, but to attend to the Jews. So, how is she going to respond? I mean play it out in your mind what if you're this woman running to Jesus you have a pronounced need that's acute it's all-consuming and you get this response hey my priorities over there not with you how would you respond in that moment <laughs> what went through her mind what kind of disappointment might she have experienced right there's no other healers she can go to she's probably exhausted every other means that's crossed her mind, and she still can't stop the devil from destroying her daughter. And so this was her test. Christ emphasized that she is second in line to the Jews. Christ emphasized that his priorities lay elsewhere. Christ was telling her that she has no claim to his healing power. And so this means that her begging And her falling to the ground it's not going to make any more difference than a dog begging for scraps and this is precisely the choke point where her faith is either proven to be genuine or to be faulty and so is she willing to accept that the jews are the chosen people of god and that the gentiles are not can she accept that she has no claim on the blessings of god is her faith in christ himself the son of david as she rightly called him or is her faith in her ability to coerce a response she's pleading she's falling at his feet she was persistent in it and so as one pastor said those with lesser faith might have erupted in anger or walked away in dejection Ooh. So Jesus's purpose was to expose the condition of her heart the genuineness of her faith and so did she accept or did she defy God's ordering of the world was her faith in the God of Israel how about this would she be as quick to affirm God's power to make her a Gentile as she would be to affirm his power to heal her daughter. And so this explains why she might have been tempted to erupt in anger or walk away in dejection. Right? Christ, Christ highlighted that she was, in fact, powerless, but not just powerless over her daughter's situation. She was actually powerless over God who made her a Gentile. And so had she humbled herself to accept God's powerful providence, not just over her daughter, but even over her life. Was she willing to worship the God who made her a Gentile just as much as she would worship him for healing her daughter? And so this, again, is where the testing of her faith was actually a threat to her, right? Because faith tells us to believe even when our eyes tell us otherwise. And what were her eyes telling her in that moment? Her eyes were telling her it's not fair that she was a Gentile and not a Jew. Her eyes told her, That it's not just that God should favor one nation and not another. Her eyes told her that this God was in fact cruel if he didn't heal her daughter. This is what her eyes would have told her. And yet this is the God that Jesus is confronting her with. By highlighting that the children are to be fed first and the dogs second. And so church, this is the very crux that we need to hear and understand ourselves. You know, like the woman, you may have some kind of a significant need in your life. And like the woman, you may have a healthy view of Christ, right? That he wields power over all things. And you're quick to affirm that just as she was. But how are you on the point of humility? Can you humbly accept your limitations and your vulnerabilities? Have you humbled yourself under the mighty hand of god right some kind of discipline or obstacle that god may have put before you have you in faith and humility accepted the boundaries that are on your life this is where the genuineness of our faith really gets tested right we're all about worshiping god and affirming his power when it's to our advantage to do so aren't we (laughs) But will you worship God and will you affirm his power when he uses that power in a way that you don't perceive to be to your advantage? That's the crux right there. Will you worship God? Will you affirm his power when he uses that power in a way that you don't perceive to be to your advantage? Now this is what distinguishes faith from fickleness, belief from opportunism now for you it might be a health limitation a financial limitation a time limitation a career limitation a relational limitation and so on and so forth and so where are you most vulnerable in this season of your life have you embraced that very vulnerability or Are you trying to wish it away and pronounce that it ain't so? This is where our faith gets tested. Do we believe God, not just for security and blessing, but will we trust him for our vulnerabilities and our limitations? And so trusting God at this point, it feels so threatening because everything that we long for seems to be in limbo. It's just beyond reach. I can't grasp it. And we wonder, can we really trust God to meet our needs, including if he chooses to withhold certain things from us? I think of Job's commendable response when he faced the same test. He said, (laughs) and he said this to his wife who was antagonizing him, she said, curse God, right? But his response was, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Ooh, His faith was tested. What a response. And so it's a truism that our worship is most pure when our faith works the hardest. And faith has to be tested, but there's great blessing to having genuine faith proven. Namely, you realize that the object of your faith, which is Christ himself, is infinitely greater than whatever earthly blessing you were looking for. And until that test, we don't realize that. And so the test is a wonderful blessing. And so we've seen that every believer comes to Christ. Every believer is tested by Christ. Well, this brings us to stage three in the testing of faith. Every believer is affirmed by Christ. Now, how did this woman respond? Now, until this point, all her activity is not enough to determine whether her faith is genuine But this is a real test. Is she willing to humble herself in light of what Christ just said to her? She has begged. Christ put an obstacle before her. And so what did she do? Did she argue? Did she give him an evil eye? Did she walk away in disdain and disgust? Well, no, she didn't do any of those things. But instead, she actually does show simple faith and a lowly humility. And so she actually responded using Jesus's same metaphor. And she said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Now we have an expression beggars can't be choosers. I heard that a lot from my older brother growing up <laughs> beggars can't be choosers. Now it conveys the simple idea that if you're needy, you're going to take whatever you're offered. <laughs> There's no bargaining when you're begging, right? Well, this woman, she found herself in that position. She was a true beggar. And so she agreed with the Lord, and not just agreed, but she even went further and humbled herself even more than what Christ had set before her. And so she was, in fact, quick to affirm that she was undeserving right and she played the only card she had left in her hand it was a card for mercy the mercy card and so in her response she actually built on christ's metaphor right she humbles herself beyond what he has challenged her with and so whereas christ said that the bread was for the children and not to be thrown to the dogs well she said that she'd be happy to receive a crumb that the children drop on the floor and really there's kind of three keys in her response that i want to show you now the first one it's actually lost in our english translations but the word that she uses for children is actually different than the word that christ uses for children right jesus's word for children emphasized the offspring aspect right because he was highlighting really the jews place of inheritance and prioritization but the word that she uses for children Again, it's a diminutive form of the word. So a small child, a younger child. And so think of a three to four-year-old versus like a 10 to twelve year old. There's a much different degree of, you know, facility at even handling food at the table. And so keep that peace in mind. Picture little toddlers sitting at a table and what happens when they're at the table. All right? You guys know it well, don't you? Now, second, whereas Christ talked about feeding bread to the children well she talked about receiving the smallest scraps of bread what do we call those small scraps crumbs so she's happy to receive crumbs she's not even asking for bread she just wants crumbs and she understands that even a crumb is enough to accomplish what I'm looking for well, third, whereas Jesus said it's not proper to throw the children's bread to the dog, right? She's saying, like, okay, I'll play the role of the dog. I'm not even begging you for bread. But instead, she's merely trying to pick up the crumbs that the toddlers have dropped under the table. So there's no presumption. There's no entitlement. She's cleaning up whatever crumbs may have fallen to the floor, even from the toddler's. That's the role that she's happy to play. She's playing her humility card so well because she's embracing her insignificance. Now this is profound because to do this, she had to affirm that she's not in control of her life and she's not in control of her daughter's life. Now for a gentile woman steeped in cultural idolatry, she was surprisingly aware of her spiritually bankrupt state. She's got no claim on anything she wasn't proud. And so as it was for her, it's the same way for us. The prospect that we're not in control of our lives is terrifying to us, right? We're going to fight tooth and nail to preserve the illusion of control, but to resign ourselves to the fact that we're at the mercy of somebody else? Well, that frightens us because it exposes us in our vulnerability, And in fact, we'll avoid vulnerability like the plague, won't we? And yet, God created us with the vulnerabilities that we have. And she didn't try to deny those very vulnerabilities. She embraced it and she played according to it in humility and in lowliness. And so after Jesus had tested her faith and she responded with the response that she did, whereby she said, yes, Lord, I agree with you and more right jesus commanded her to go and that the demon had left her daughter right her faith was vindicated jesus had in fact cast this demon out of her precious little girl and so he answered her request and amazingly he did it without ever even seeing the child what's surprising though too is that he didn't even speak to the demon to command it to depart he simply relayed to her go on home your daughter is healed Amazing. Her faith was, in fact, rewarded. And so Mark ends the story by telling us that this is exactly how she found things when she got home. Her child was lying in bed and the demon had departed. This mother had her precious little girl again. I mean, think about it. She must have just been overcome with relief and gratitude and thanksgiving and just wow the burden that she's been under her precious little daughter delivered and in a peaceful condition but not just that her own faith which had experienced such incredible turmoil finally experienced its vindication as well she had been hoping in christ hoping in christ hoping in christ oh he's nearby she drops what she's doing she runs to him she pleads with him obstacle in her path She does the spiritual limbo and she goes low. So low. Boom. Because of your statement, your daughter is healed. (laughs) Her faith was vindicated. A healed daughter and the blessing of knowing that she has received mercy from God. What did this woman learn? She learned that her security was to be found in her vulnerability. Catch that, church. Her security was to be found in her vulnerability. Everybody can sigh. (laughs) That's marvelous truth right there. Turns our categories upside down, doesn't it? the inertia and the momentum of our life is minimize vulnerability get rid of that stuff and yet that's precisely where christ calls us to exercise faith in him and so i ask you this morning what stage of testing are you at in your faith right is your faith glimmering and sparkling on the outside maybe you have come to christ and you're bringing your burdens to him and this is great we have to do that but don't stop there Instead, continue on to where you acknowledge that your faith is, in fact, being tested and learn to humbly accept the limitations that God has put upon you, right? To reckon and to wrestle with the providence of God, including your vulnerabilities. Well, lastly, once your faith has been tested, you'll find that your faith is, in fact, vindicated and proven genuine. Christ will affirm you for enduring in faith. Now, let me just add this if you've recently come through one of these kinds of trails trials and christ has vindicated your faith and you have found that relief so to speak right thank the lord for what he has done but i would urge you also to go and encourage the faith of other saints around you We need that encouragement desperately. And if you've seen the faithfulness of God play out through your particular trial in a recent season, go and testify to the faithfulness of God. Where was your vulnerability? What were your fears? Where were you trembling? What were you trying to ignore and wish it weren't so? And how did Christ meet you there? And that's gonna be a testimony of grace that further encourages a faith-filled response To others who are in that testing of their faith right now and so let me close with the lyrics that I shared even at the beginning from that Getty song says may this journey bring a blessing may I rise on wings of faith and at the end of my heart's testing with your likeness let me wake let's pray gracious God We thank you that you are the God who tests our hearts. Lord, we confess that we don't look forward to that examination. But again, that's precisely what you use actually to strengthen and to refine our faith. And more importantly, to bring glory to yourself. Lord, we confess that we're too easily attached to the things of this world, the comforts and the securities and Lord, we want predictability, and yet we're to put our hope and our faith and our confidence in you, and that's where our true treasure lies. And so, Lord, we can't wrestle our hearts to that place, but thank you that you're faithful to do that ministry in us and to us because, again, you're the God who tests our faith. And so, Lord, encourage us in that process. Bring us along, I pray, even today for whatever tests and trials that these dear saints are going through uh, that they would be fortified in their faith pressing in with confidence again according to who you are and the promises you've made and we pray this in christ's name amen